Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Even as more states legalize cannabis, it is still federally prohibited despite attempts from a bipartisan group of lawmakers to pass industry friendly legislation. In this panel discussion, shareholder Melissa Kuypers Blake and policy directors Drew Littman and Brian Wild swap insights on the status of federal legislation, including the Safe Banking Act, More Act, and Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. They also discuss possible impacts from the upcoming 2022 midterm elections on the cannabis industry. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, we're looking forward to a very politically exciting and, and uh, interesting conversation on cannabis today. Um, but really, what conversation on cannabis isn't exciting, certainly these days in the context of Washington, D.C.? Uh, my name is Melissa Kuypers Blake. I am the co chair of Brownstein's Cannabis and Hemp Practice, uh, along with my partner, Amy Steinfeld, in our Santa Barbara office. Brownstein's Cannabis and Industrial Hemp Group includes a multidisciplinary team of 30 plus attorneys, policy professionals, lobbyists, and land use planners from across the firm's 12 offices from DC to Denver to Santa Barbara, California. We support over 150 clients in the cannabis and hemp space addressing all segments of the cannabis, industrial hemp, and CBD industries. We take pride in being at the forefront of cannabis and hemp policy in state legislatures nationwide and in Washington, D.C., helping shape policies and regulatory framework from the ground up. We have decades of experience in land use, real estate, and water law, representing interest in top cultivation and retail markets. Our clients include the U.S. Cannabis Council, the broadest collection of organizations businesses, and individuals ever to assemble to legalize cannabis in the United States, along with some, large, some of the largest fully permitted cannabis farms in California and major consumer products and brand companies. Last but not least, our team in Denver and across the U.S. has addressed dozens of M&A deals in the cannabis space, and as we know, there's major consolidation in the industry. We've helped ent entities close on over $100 million in transactions, and with that, as I said, my name is Melissa Kuypers Blake. I've worked in politics for the last 20 plus years, starting in Tallahassee in the Florida legislature, and then moving to Denver about 14 years ago, right before cannabis was legalized for adult use in the state. And since then, my own practice has focused not only on local, state, and federal lobbying, but with an emphasis on, emphasis rather on cannabis in Washington, D.C. It is probably the most unique and exciting policy area I personally have ever worked on, and I trust my colleagues feel the same. So with that, uh, let me introduce both of my Washington colleagues here joining us today uh, to give a brief introduction, and then we will dive in. Uh, Drew Lippman, please go ahead first. Well, thank you, Melissa. It's, it's a pleasure to work with you and to work as part of this cannabis group. You're right. It is a novel and interesting issue, a cutting edge issue in a lot of ways. My name is Drew Littman. I've been with the firm for more than four years. I started on Capitol Hill in 1989, working for then Congresswoman Barbara Boxer from Marin County. Uh, I worked with her in the House and Senate, managing her Senate transition, was in the private sector for a long stretch, but continued to work on Senate transitions and returned to Capitol Hill after running Al Franken's transition to be Al Franken's first chief of staff. It was and still is, as far as I'm concerned, best job in Washington. Um, back in the private sector for a stretch, and then I joined uh, Obama's Department of Health and Human Services, 
where I was senior counselor to Secretary Burwell. So I was part of her seven-person senior management team. I've continued to do special projects for Democrats. I ran then Mayor Cory Booker's Senate transition, helped out with John Hickenlooper's Senate transition. Earlier this year, one of my most interesting uh, gigs, I helped Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland prepare for his Senate confirmation hearings, playing a senator in uh, a series of hearings for Garland. A lot of highly loaded issues for the Attorney General nominee. Um, Since joining Brownstein, I've also appeared frequently on television and radio as a Democratic strategist, um, MSNBC, Fox, CNN, NPR. So if I become tongue-tied, I really have no excuse because I've been very well trained. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you very much, Drew. And I've never seen you be tongue-tied. I doubt it will happen today. Uh, Next, Brian Wild. Uh, Thank you, Melissa. Um, so I'm Brian Wild. I, I come from um, the opposite side of the aisle, Drew. I'm, I'm on Team Republican, um, have been um, actually originally from, from Colorado, but I, I left Colorado actually before the Colorado Rockies even came here and back when cannabis was never even thought of um, as being close to legal. So I've been in D.C. since 1993. Um, <clears throat> kind of similarly, I've, I've worked for um, two different U.S. senators um, I worked for, for three different House members. I worked for um, Vice President Cheney in, in a host of, um, of different ways for Republicans. But the general migration was I started on the Senate bud- Budget Committee and really stuck to economic issues, um, moved into um, more uh, policy side with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, got even broader, um, and, then, and then eventually kind of came back to the political side. I was the chief of staff to Senator Toomey, um, went on to work for um, Speaker Boehner, um, and then um, worked for uh, minority leader Kevin McCarthy at the time. Um, I've been at the at Brownstein for six years. I kind of a every down player, so um, speak a lot of real conservative Republican, um, dealt a lot with the Trump administration in the last four years, um, and now um, working in the minority status uh, in the in the House and, and the Senate um, and, and looking for how to build the party back. Um, and, and really, cannabis is an interesting issue when you get into the politics of it. Um, I've been dealing with cannabis issues here at Brownstein and a host of clients um, since it became legal at Colorado. And, and um, it's kind of fun. Very rarely do you get to, to be at the ground floor of, of creating federal policy. Normally, we're reacting to policy that was made you know, decades ago. So um, pretty fun, diverse group of clients and and happy to be part of this. Perfect. And with those backgrounds, uh, we will dive right in and talk about substance and policy and, of course, politics. Um, We'd like to start uh, and and not to presume that our, our viewers here today are as fully up to speed on every nuance of the bills we're about to discuss. We'll do a quick overview of the bills in Washington right now under consideration, uh, and then dive into what we think happens uh, with each of those pieces of legislation. So first off, uh, the Safe Banking Act, uh, the acronym Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act, is really uh, a safe harbor for financial institutions who wish to engage in business with the cannabis industry. And this is an effort spearheaded by our very own Congressman Ed Perlmutter from Colorado, who has been more than a champion on the issue for the last several years, uh, has passed the bill both as a standalone measure out of the House and in several other larger packages 
uh, and most recently in the National Defense Spending Bill, uh, the NDAA, with hopes of having it pass as a must as a must will or must go rather in the Senate. Um, let's talk about the banking bill. You know, obviously, we have uh, all come in contact with financial institutions and namely credit unions uh, who are interested in pushing the bill, including the American Bankers Association, who have made this a high priority. Knowing that that is out there, uh, and again, we'll get to some of these other larger bills. Um, Drew, we'll start with you. Why do you think the banking bill has not yet found a path in the Senate? And I recognize, um, you know, Brian, you've got great relationships with Senator Toomey, having worked for him, who serves on the committee, um, and love to hear your thoughts. But Drew, kick us off on the Democrat politics. Um, why hasn't the safe banking bill had a hearing, uh, much less moved through the process yet? Thanks, Melissa. This really, on the surface, is a paradox because the you mentioned that Perlmutter is the real hero uh, when it comes to SAFE. But there is a Senate equivalent bill. It was introduced by Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon. It has 39 con- co-sponsors, of whom 31 are Democrats or the independents who caucus with the Democrats. Just nine are Republicans. So the bill already has this support, explicit support of more than half of the Democratic caucus, 60 percent of the Democratic caucus. You would think the bill would be moving, but but it's caught up in a a larger, more complicated dynamic. And I suspect we'll be returning to this issue right now. There are Democratic senators who feel much more strongly about racial justice issues and equity issues than they do about legalization per se. Or let me put that slightly differently. There are senators, many of them, Cory Booker most prominently, but not just Booker, who feel that the, the black community has suffered the most because of unfair and draconian sentencing for marijuana possession. Now they see a, a, a situation where maybe white entrepreneurs who will now reap the benefit of legalization while some of these poor black people convicted of minor crimes are still in prison. So the idea that you would sort of formalize or facilitate these banking arrangements, business financing arrangements, even consumer credit, use of consumer credit to to purchase um, is galling to them, in principle, galling to them. The second more practical reason and the kind of thing we think about a lot dealing with members of Congress is simply this. Congress is not going is Congress is very unlikely to pass multiple cannabis-related bills. So if SAFE were to get through without equity and equal justice programs and, and, and funding for community programs, that means that probably the only vehicle has gone through and the equity stuff then languishes maybe for the long term. So, so the view very firmly expressed by Cory Booker is over my dead body. It's just not going to move. And, and that's part of the reason there hasn't been a hearing. I think also there's um, on the part of senators more than House members, senators tend to be older. There's some temperamental conservatism, even among senators who we think of as very liberal. Um, they're not they want everybody to jump at once. So so the banking committee has not shown a lot of eagerness, the leadership of that committee, to start holding hearings on the subject. It's a subject that's largely foreign to them. And from what they see, not of enormous interest to their voters. If you're Sherrod Brown from Ohio, Democratic chair of the banking committee, 
this is not at the top of the agenda because his voters aren't forcing him to see it as being at the top of the agenda, whereas there are a lot of other financial issues um, uh, for Ohio constituents that Brown is concerned about and traditionally has been concerned about. So I think that that's what we're up against, I think, especially in the Senate. You know, and interestingly, um, you know, your comment about, you know, African-Americans and the disproportionate impact on communities of color by the war on drugs. um, You know, the Minority Cannabis Business Association has gone to Senator Booker and said, this is a huge equity issue for us. Um, So has that not moved the senator? Um, I I think the the senator has digested that he's aware of it. and, And so that enters the. The, the mental database, but you still have you still have people in prison. And that's really the black entrepreneurs matter a great deal to Booker. But uh, it's worth knowing. And and I, I did help at the last minute with edits to Booker's memoir, the book called United. So I read it very thoroughly. And Booker lived in, a, in as mayor. He did not live in the mayor's residence. He lived in a very dangerous housing project in Newark. He knew people. He knew people who were dealing drugs. He knew people who were victimized by the drug trade. He knew people who went to prison. He knew their families. He feels very deeply about that. And what he sees is real unfairness and unfairness that could really be exacerbated if a bill like safe were to move without the justice provisions he cares about. So, yes, he's aware of the of the of the interests of of black entrepreneurs. But there still is this group that he sees being left behind. And he sees it as really uniquely his mission to make sure that doesn't happen. Understood. I'll just, I'll just add, you know, I I think I don't speak for a lot of Democrats, but I I think politically there is a, you know, we're, we're at an era where the perfect is the enemy of the good. And and you can see, you know, the current debate over the debt ceiling and, and reconciliation and the, and infrastructure is part of that as well. But there is a tendency when you're a party that has complete control, as the Democrats do, to, to think that the perfect is possible. So I think when you look at a bill like SAFE, which, which, which helps you know, a part of the problem but doesn't fix the entirety of the problem, you don't want to move away from perfect until the last minute, um, until you know you can't accomplish comprehensive. And then you start looking at rifle shots. Um, and I think that that's why right now there's a little less focus uh, on safe in the Senate is, is they still think that comprehensive is possible. Absolutely. And, and we're about to move on to the comprehensive overview with the MORE Act and the CAOA Act. Um, but before we do, Brian, talk a little bit about Senator Toomey. You know, he's from a legal state, medical cannabis, um, not running again, is and also certainly serves as the ranking member on the committee. So what do you think is in his mind? And, you know, should this be an opportunity for him to vote? How do you think he he goes with that? Um, he's actually a great example of, of Republicans as a whole and in, in evolving on, on the issue. Um, I think, you know, five years ago, there was kind of a knee jerk conservative reaction that that marijuana is a drug. It's illegal. It's bad. I'm against it. Um, and then I think one seeing you know state after state, there's a certain libertarian um, uh, patriotism here that's that's going watching these watching these states um, enact uh, legalization across the board that that makes Republicans start to think, hey, um, 
I believe in states' rights. Maybe I should look at this again. Um, and then I think there's there's safety concerns right now. You know, um, Toomey is an interesting guy. He comes from the banking world himself. Um, you know, he he was on Wall Street. Uh, he worked in an industrial bank. He then founded his own bank. Um, so he really views things through the lens of the financial services world. And I think he understands more so now than he did a year ago or, or, or certainly three or four years ago. Uh, the safety implications here, um, the fact that 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 credit unions and, and other folks that are involved are, are making um, very risky decisions to try to bank and that there is an unbanked problem. Um, and so I, I'm not sure Toomey himself is at a point that he's going to put his name on a bill, um, but I feel like he is probably part of a group of Republican senators that if the Safe Banking Act came up in the Senate, I wouldn't be surprised to see him support it um, and, and ultimately vote yes. Um, two years ago, not only would he have voted no, he probably would have led the opposition. So there's, there's evolution happening um, here. And I, I also think a lot of the industry um, and cannabis trade groups look at, at how popular cannabis is and think that that should automatically transfer into Republican support and are surprised when it doesn't. Um, and, you know, kind of to Drew's point on the senior statesman side, I mean, these are folks that were politicians, you know, 20 years ago, and it takes them a while to evolve. It takes them longer to evolve um, than it takes, you know, your average voter who only looks at politics, you know, once every two years. So we're getting there. It's just baby steps. Indeed. Many of us have had uh, hundreds of conversations, you and I included with Republicans on the Hill, Brian, and um, in the beginning of that effort, they wouldn't take a meeting. And a couple of years later, uh, they said, well, maybe we'll do a little bit of an educational session. Why don't you come by and tell me what you've learned at the state level? And now we're getting calls to come in and talk about policy and language. So you're, you're absolutely right. The, the movement is happening among conservatives, a little bit of it. And we talk about this a lot is Republicans don't actually know how to talk about cannabis because for the last 30, 40 years, they've been told it's just a straight no. Um, and, and between no and yes, there's a wide gap of how to message something. And, and certainly our team and others are, are working to help them with that comfort level. Um, so let's, let's go back over to the House. A lot of activity on cannabis yesterday. Uh, the, More app, the More Act uh, was marked up in committee for a second time in judiciary. Uh, we expect it will get a floor vote here in the coming weeks. Um, and I think I'd like to take the More Act with the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, or what people are calling the Schumer Bill, uh, perhaps as a package, because they're very comparable pieces of legislation. They both remove cannabis from the list of controlled substances. They both impose uh, an excise tax in some way, although the bills differ on how. Uh, the CAO goes a little further to set up a full regulatory structure related uh, to overall enforcement, including FDA oversight. Um, but really, the core of both bills is to make cannabis legal and to set up a structure for long-term regulation of the product. Um, let's talk about the MORE Act. As Brian alluded to, we've got infrastructure in the House. We've got the uh, reconciliation bill and out of nowhere, the MORE Act is in committee yesterday. So, Drew, why did that happen? What's the what are the politics behind that? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, Jerry Nadler from the Upper West Side of New York is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, the committee that approved the bill. And I think it's always important to know where the chairman's coming from and, and, and where the chairman's been. Um, more 
is has not stood out as a bipartisan bill in the way that SAFE has more or less. Uh, Moore has 76 co-sponsors. That's 75 Democrats plus Republican Matt Gates. Um, for the committee vote, it passed the committee 2615. Among the Democrats on the committee, uh, 20, all 24 who voted voted for it. None voted against it. But only two Republicans voted for it and 15 voted against it. So that the positioning of that bill is unfortunately a bit more partisan. Um, I see Nadler having a similar set of issues to, to Chuck Schumer um, and some other politicians, especially in New York. Going back, it seems like a century ago, but but in 2018, you had a very popular New York House member from Queens, Joe Crowley. A lot of people, myself included, thought he would eventually succeed Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. Great political skills, very much like Schumer. Everybody loved the guy, very popular and really in touch with his district. And yet he lost the Democratic primary to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, very few people voted in that primary because it was a fait accompli that Crowley was going to win anyway. But the idea that you could lose to a challenge from the left was somewhat new to Democrats. We saw it with Republicans and challenges from the right in some primaries. That's how some, some very well-respected Republicans got knocked out of their seats, including senators. But we hadn't seen it from the left. Folks like Chuck Schumer now face threats. Schumer is up for re-election in 2022. Face threats and are very concerned about their left frank, flank and the prospect of a primary. Chuck Schumer will not lose re-election to a Republican. He could be theoretically vulnerable to a primary. Joe Crowley, Joe Crowley certainly wasn't going to lose to a Republican either. I lived on the Upper West Side of New York before I moved to D.C. Jerry Nadler is not going to lose re-election in a general election. There's no Republican who could beat him in that district. But if you had, he's been in Congress a long time. Um, if you had, you know, a young, dynamic, uh, maybe someone who would bring more diversity, a, a young candidate like that, who put an issue like cannabis legalization in the center, you could see how suddenly that person would be building a platform to run against Nadler in a primary. Now, of course, Nadler really does believe that cannabis should be legal. I don't want to sound cynical, but I think Democrats are very aware of their left flanks. And it's this is part of where Democrats and Republicans uh, diverge. These Republicans are concerned about their right flank, and the right flank is not looking for cannabis legalization. You've got some libertarians there, yes, but not certainly not uniformly. With the Democrats, the left flank uniformly wants faster movement on cannabis legalization. And that's something that that older, more senior, more experienced Democrats have to be very aware of. Absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, there was only one Republican uh, supporting the, the Moore Act, Matt Gates from Florida. You know, Brian, let's kind of compare and contrast uh, between the Moore Act and SAFE and where you think Republicans land. You know, on the SAFE banking bill in the House, there's over 93 Republicans that have signed on to support the bill and truly believe it's the right policy. When you jump to the Moore Act, as we mentioned, it goes to one. What is that gap? Are there do you think there's room for Republicans to support more comprehensive cannabis reform or is it just too partisan right now and they're going to play politics over policy? Well, I would I'd make the argument that the Moore Act is is actually playing politics over policy itself. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, you know, it's really crafted um, to get democratic support. It's not crafted to get any Republican support. Um, I think that, that it's, it has, it includes, it's, it's as inclusive as it could be um, in all of the Democrat wish list. And, and by doing that, it makes it very difficult for a Republican to support it. I think if you, if, if, if you really wanted to decriminalize marijuana and you did a couple of rifle shots, I, th- I think you could have a real bipartisan conversation. I think Republicans are ready to have um, that conversation, you know, and, and it, if the States Act, which maybe we should talk about as well, were to come up again, which which basically would allow um, to take the federal government out of this this conversation and those states that wanted to legalize could legalize and regulate it on their own. I, I think Republicans are in a place that they would support a, a, a decrim bill like that when you're also expunging criminals records, um, when you're subsidizing the startups of new businesses um, when you're putting a 5% excise tax without really a lot of research or thought into how that 5% number came up. Um, those are, those are issues, policy issues that Republicans have a concern with. So, you know, I, I think, I don't think Morak's going to pick up a lot of Republicans. Um, I like the process in the Senate at least a little better. Um, you know, the Moore Act was really created by a single chairman with the goal of keeping it in the chair, in the jurisdiction of his committee. Um, versus the Senate, you know, Senators Booker and Schumer are actually trying to build a bill um, a little a little bit more, you know, inclusively and asking for support and asking for others. And we haven't seen Republicans really participate in that, but I at least like the process that they're going through to try to build a, a, a comprehensive bill that way. And I, I think that's what Republicans need. They need to be able to support individual items within a bigger bill. Um, and have say in that rather than just being asked at the end after the bill's been drafted, yes or no. Indeed. And, and there's a lot of conversation on the Hill about, you know, needing to walk before you run on cannabis and, you know, how some Senate Democrats truly just want to run. They're, they're tired of waiting, justifiably so. They want to see wholesale reform. Um, obviously, Republicans need to be comfortable and create some muscle memory on cannabis, to your point about bite-sized pieces. Um, so let's pivot to the, the Cannabis uh, Administration and Opportunity Act. So Senator uh, Booker's, Senators Booker, Wyden, and Schumer uh, have essentially taken pieces of legislation they've independently carried in prior sessions, put them all together into this one bill, and produced a draft bill for massive stakeholder uh, feedback and consideration. Many, many industry groups, including our clients, submitted feedback by the September 1 deadline. Um, what do we think happens in terms of timing? Um, and and I, I offer this to both of you, and let's start with Brian. You know, there have been Obviously, there's going to be, uh, you know, a massive infrastructure, potentially conference uh, negotiation. You've got the spending bill. Where does cannabis fit into the timing? Will we see a bill from uh, Schumer, Booker, Wyden this year? Would it be next year ahead of the election that it's introduced? What do we think happens? Um, Is there a bill before the end of the year? And if so, does it get uh, any time? Well, I think one of the great disappointments um, for for advocates has been the, the absence of the Biden administration's support for this. Um, you know, this is the president's honeymoon year, um, and he gets to really set the set the, set the list of priorities of what bills he wants to to, to discuss, and and it's really up to Senator Schumer and and Speaker Pelosi to make that wish list happen. 
Um, and, and legalization is nowhere on that wish list. Um, it hasn't been mentioned um, by the administration. You know, Merrick Garland, uh, who everybody was waiting to get out from underneath um, the, the Trump administration and, and their um, attorneys general and, and Merrick Garland's, frankly, exactly where they were. I, I haven't seen a lot of policy difference. Um, so I, I don't think this is a big um, <clears throat> priority for the administration, which means it's not a big priority for Schumer. Um, you know, the Senate and the House, they're, they're running, they have to run for re-election. Um, and, and I think Senator Schumer is trying to schedule bills um, that are going to help his people in a 50-50 Senate um, retain the majority in two years. Um, if this ends up being politically an issue that the Democrats think helps them um, in, in next year's elections, then I think you, you could see some floor action maybe late in the year. Um, but right now, it, it, it's just getting drowned out by the, by the president's priorities. Drew, does that sound right? Yeah, Brian, I think, I think those are useful insights. And I think um, President Biden is an example of the kind of person who is not unsympathetic, but has no real instinct for these issues. You know, he's 78 years old. He's been on the Hill for, uh, uh, he's been in public life for about 50 years. Um, he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He was the principal author of a very tough on crime bill. You know, he was there during the war on drugs. Uh, he was there during the crack epidemic. And so uh, Biden, really, a lot of his reputation and his his well-earned reputation, I think, for being able to reach across the aisle came out of working on the crime bill and bills like that. Uh, he's a law enforcement person. Violence Against Women Act is the bill probably most associated with Joe Biden. So he doesn't instinctively turn around on this. Um, I, just a couple more notes, though, about this. About this bill that Senator Booker has been working on, it's important to note in, in framing this conversation, the significance of this being Schumer, Booker, Wyden bill for people who don't follow politics every day. Chuck Schumer, of course, is the majority leader. Cory Booker chairs the crime subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee and has been most active on criminal justice reform. And Ron Wyden chairs the Finance Committee, which writes tax legislation. Because this bill has tax provisions, any bill with tax provisions must go through the Finance Committee. So you have the three most important players, the guys who would be the three most important players on this process as the authors of the bill. That's fairly unusual. And I think that bodes well long-term, maybe not immediately, for passage of the bill. I also add in terms of context, Cory Booker and Republican Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina both announced separately last week that they were ending negotiations on a major criminal justice reform bill that they had started talking about back in 2020. Um, and, and, and negotiations ended bitterly with recriminations. Um, and at that part, I won't get into but, but I think this has been supremely frustrating for Booker because that's the thing he's been working on all year, um, really to the exclusion of almost anything else. That's been priority number one for Booker. And since he didn't get criminal justice reform there, I think he will be that much more intent on getting some version of it or element or some success in that area somewhere else. 
and, and, and this is the place to do it on cannabis legislation. I don't think this bill will move this year in congressional terms. We're very close to the end of the year. Um, they're not going to be in session much longer in the remaining three months. They just passed a, a continuing resolution to fund the government till December 3rd, but they'll probably have to pass more continuing resolutions before finally pa passing a big omnibus appropriations bill. They have to either waive the debt ceiling or increase the debt ceiling for the government to continue to function. They still have to pass that bipartisan infrastructure bill. Democrats still intend to pass a very large rec reconciliation bill. And you've got the National Defense Authorization Act out there. That has to pass also. The House version of that, of course, includes safe for the moment. But that's a big, big traffic jam for the last three months of the year. So either you're getting into one of those bills and major cannabis legislation isn't getting into one of those bills or you're not getting a bill passed. And I think the 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 authors of this of this forthcoming bill recognize that that's the case. So I think what you're going to see is a lot of activity laying the groundwork um, for a more concerted effort next year. That's right, Drew, and, and great characterization of the timing. Um, so with that, you know, let's talk about the even bigger picture in terms of Senate procedure and politics. Um, you mentioned the president. We all know he's a creature of the Senate more than he is a creature of the executive. The filibuster. Uh, do we see a change in the filibuster to where uh, it goes away and Democrats can push not only cannabis reform, but other things? Uh, or does the president either privately and or publicly uh, announced that he wouldn't support changing the dynamics of the Senate in that way. Uh, Drew, what do you think? Well, the president, and, and again, this goes to his instincts and the length of time he's been here in a lot of ways, old school, he has resisted supporting changes in the filibuster. I think, I, I think he will show some flexibility on that. But, but like I said, he is a creature of the old school. He really hates the idea of Democrats only passing bills um, you know, straight party line, Democrats, all Democrats vote yay, all Republicans vote nay. That's not really his style, but it isn't up to him. He can have some influence, but it's really up to Schumer and the Democrats. I believe what will happen is that the Democrats will make some exceptions to the filibuster rule, to the requirement of 60 votes for certain legislation. We saw them do that late in the Obama presidency, also late in Harry Reid's tenure as the majority leader, when they wanted to get through judges, Republicans were embargoing Obama's judge nominees, and Obama was out of time, really, for accomplishments. So was Harry Reid. Technically, they didn't change the rules. They, they got a new precedent in a ruling from the chair. But, but without getting into all the detail, that's something that they could do again tomorrow on any other subject they choose. But it's not going to be cannabis. It could be voting rights reform, could even be the debt ceiling, um, but it will have to be something major like that that crosses the entire party and that has more of a more of a constitutional, I would say, dynamic. In other words, voting rights, whether you're for or against these voting rights reforms, they go straight to constitutional law issues. Cannabis isn't like that. Um, and so I don't think the filibuster will be discarded for legislation like the cannabis legislation we're seeing. I, I also, I, I think it's wrong to assume that you could get 50 Democrats for legalization. Um, I, 
we don't know. I, maybe you can, um, but I'm not sure that there are 50 Democrats in the Senate that would support um, COA or more right now. Um, it's, it's not as, it's not as universal as, as folks want to think. I think you get a solid 40. Um, I think you could get over 50 because I think there's some Republicans like Rand Paul that would probably vote for just about anything um, in this space. But I, I, I don't know. And, and, and I think Lisa Murkowski, and I think there are some Republicans that are there, but I'm not sure you get 50 Democrats and, and they're, they're not going to test the filibuster unless they know they get it. Which is exactly why we probably won't see a wholesale cannabis reform bill on the floor. I mean, those of us, you know, in those meetings and twisting arms uh, could probably count to 40, maybe 43 Democrats. Um, you're absolutely right, Brian. Uh, and that's exactly why the leader hasn't put the bill uh, on the floor yet. And to your point, we'll not use the t- filibuster for the test. So I want to reserve a little time for Q&A. But before we do that, let's transition over to 2022. Let's talk midterms. Um, you know, there's a feeling that when the Senate flipped uh, to essentially uh, Democrat control, uh, notwithstanding 50-50, that you would see automatic reform for cannabis, along with a bunch of other priorities. And we obviously have not seen that. Uh, and, and to Drew's point, uh, the president is not pushing it anything, he is less helpful than President Trump was, which makes all of us kind of scratch our heads because President Trump was more engaged on cannabis reform, both the safe banking bill and the States Act uh, than we've seen so far from the Biden White House. So Brian, let's start with you. All that to say, uh, what happens in November? Do the Republicans pick up the House? Uh, Do they pick up the House and the Senate? Do they pick up neither? What are your crystal ball predictions for uh, about a year from now? Well, I'll even go further. so, yeah, I, it's it's interesting. You know, I think the assumption that most people are starting to make um, is, is that the Republicans are going to take control of, of the House um, in November. I think even you talk to a lot of the House Democrat members and there's some assumption in that, which is why they're trying to legislate the way they're trying to legislate right now. Um, it's a combination of redistricting, which Republicans seem to be uh, benefiting from more than Democrats. Um, it's a it's a combination of any time of a party takes control. There's a little bit of overreach anyway. And so there's, there's a little snapback. Um, and then, and then I think just pure candidate wise uh, momentum seems to be behind Republicans right now. So I, I think there's a really good opportunity for Republicans to take, take control of the house. Um, the Senate, you know, once again, um, you know, it's 50, 50, um, Republicans have a lot of retirements right now in, in states that are hard for them, um, to, to regain, you know, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, uh, Rob, Rob Portman in Ohio, uh, um, Roy Blunt in, in Missouri, um, you know, among others, th- those are hard seats for Republicans to retain. So I, <clears throat> even if Republicans have momentum, I think it's harder for them to get in the Senate. And, and I'll, I'll go one further and, and say I like the idea of a split Congress, especially in this industry for this, for this issue. I, I think there's, there's opportunity going back to the very first conversation. Um, right now, the perfect is the enemy of the good um, in accomplishing things. And I think once legislators realize the perfect is, in, is, is impossible, which a split government would, would demonstrate that, I think there's a real chance to legislate and to, and to move some of these balls forward. Um, it's more difficult. It's blocking and tackling. It's real live lobbying and advocating and grassroots. Um, but I think there's a chance there um, to get some of these things across the road. Drew? 
Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, and that's a great analysis. I'll just I'll insert a few numbers here um, for the people who aren't political junkies. After the 2020 election, Democrats had 222 seats and Republicans had 213 seats in the House. If you think the way we think, the number five is the number Republicans would need a net gain to flip. So, so you're thinking about that number five. Because of the census, you have reapportionment. Some states will have fewer seats and some states will have more. And then redistricting within states. Reapportionment and redistricting put together because of which states are gaining seats and which are losing seat, seats, places like Texas gaining, New York losing. Just with reapportionment and redistricting, Republicans should get the five, the net gain of five that they need to take the majority. That's all things being equal. But all things aren't equal in midterms. Since World War II, the president's party has lost seats in the House, net loss of seats in 17 of 19 midterms. The other two, there were somewhat special circumstances. And the average loss of seats for the president's party, I cringe when I think about it, is 27 seats. The Democrats won't lose 27 seats net in this midterm because they actually lost seats when they won the presidency in 2020. That's highly unusual. Usually there are coattails. Maybe you win a couple of extra districts that you shouldn't have. Um, but but you wouldn't expect something like that, where, where Biden wins and Democrats lose seats in the House. So there's not much of an overhang for Democrats, but there certainly are seats that Democrats can lose. The Senate doesn't track um, those patterns exactly because only a third of the Senate is up and which seats are up make a, makes a huge difference. In this cycle, 20 Republican seats are up, just 14 Democratic seats. Generally, the party with more seats up has a bigger job in defending its seats. As Brian mentioned, you've got uh, a bunch of retirements on the Republican side, but no Democratic retirements so far. Having said that, among incumbents, Democrats do have the more vulnerable incumbents, I think, in Georgia, in Nevada, and in New Hampshire. So I'd call the Senate a toss-up in terms of who's going to have control. But one thing I'd say that I would also be looking at in the midterms and beyond, and I say this piece of uh, gossip I heard from uh, friends who work in the White House, is... uh, as far as they're concerned, speaking off the record, Kamala Harris is running for president now. So is Pete Buttigieg. Uh, they're running against each other. Folks in the White House do not know if President Biden is going to run for reelection. Naturally, everybody will be supportive if he is. But it's considered an open question now. And Harris, of course, is pro-legalization. She has just generationally, you could see why her view would be different, even though she was a prosecutor. As I believe that if Harris emerges more clearly and dramatically as a Democratic presidential candidate, or as one of the most serious contenders, you could see some movement on this issue from the White House, because I believe her influence will grow. Um, And this would be an easy way for her to get a win if the White House shifts position. So I would just offer that as something I know we'll be watching that. And I think folks in the industry should be keeping an eye on that as well. That's really great insight. Um, where's Buttigieg on cannabis? You know, I, I haven't looked at that. I assume he's pro-legalization and he probably has some, you know, McKinsey-ish view of, of the economic gains that could be reaped 
if we move to legalization and really deal with it in a comprehensive way. He's someone who would relate to safe banking, I think, very quickly, while also relating to equity, of course. But I don't think you'd have to work too hard to convince him uh, of the importance of something like that. Um, but but it's it's really it's it's Harris in the White House that really stands out to me. Indeed. Um, well, and I want to leave our, our viewers and listeners a little bit of hope. I know we've talked to granularity about some of these bills, um, but there's been an incredible push in the in the most positive of ways on cannabis reform like we've never seen on the Hill. Mm-hmm. And the meetings that we've all had over the last several you know years and even decades at this point have all pointed to a general acceptance among policymakers that cannabis legalization is going to happen. There cannot be this disjointed nature of 37 legal states um, and and a zero legal status at the federal government level forever. Um, Obviously, there is uh, a difference of opinion among policymakers, as as we have discussed, about the how. But the what, even among conservatives, seems to be a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen. So those of you in the industry want to leave you with that positive note to say you're in the right place. You're going to be very well positioned when legalization happens. I don't think any of us would be bold enough to predict a timeline, um, but it is going to happen. So uh, keep fighting the good fight. And with that, I want to thank Drew and Brian. Um, Let's go into Q&A. So, Nikki, I will hand it back over to you. All right. So our first one we have on federalization, isn't it the elephant in the room, the filibuster, and unless it's modified in the short term that there will be no movement of any Democrat bills for a number of years? And I think we covered that question already. Um, Yes, the filibuster may be addressed in uh, piecemeal, probably not in whole cloth. Okay, next one we have any 280E modification thoughts? Uh, Well, just this week, uh, the IRS released guidance uh, related to the Cannabis and Marijuana Initiative, as they're calling it, which only serves as protocols to help cannabis operators pay their 280E liability, not to in any way reduce or uh, alleviate their 280E liability. And that all goes back to what Drew mentioned about the White House. Um, President Biden is not looking to change 280E for cannabis operators. All of that to say Senate Finance Chairman Ron Wyden from Oregon fully appreciates the problematic nature of this. And uh, we have been on the Hill pushing for 280E reform. There's some conversation around using the budget appropriations process and putting in a rider similar to what's been done uh, with the Department of Justice to say that Treasury cannot use any of their funds to enforce against 280E. But the real problem is that it sits, cannabis still sits on the list of controlled substances. And short of that, um, and short of Congress changing that, it's very difficult for Treasury to change enforcement. Um, but I'd love to hear from Drew and Brian if you have additional thoughts on, on 280E. We know it is a number one problem for the day-to-day operations of the cannabis industry. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the bigger issue, you know, the federal government is is currently, or Congress is currently in the mode to, to look for more cash, um, not to give cash away um, on, the, on the tax side. Um, they're actually looking at ways to increase funding at the IRS to, to, in order to, to use the, <clears throat> the extra collections they get to pay for um, President Biden's uh, reconciliation bill. Um, so I, I, I don't see a window there. I, I think that the, the, the great trade-off is, that, that is this excise tax concept. I think that 280E really needs to offset the revenue loss that they have to the – if you eliminate it, the federal government loses revenue. 
um, they need to offset that by the cannabis industry, then having some sort of excise tax put on it to replace that revenue. Um, and that's ends up getting part of the bigger comprehensive legalization effort. So I don't, I think the rifle shot unless Republicans um, gain control of everything again, um, we're not looking to, to cut taxes across the board for a while. And then we do have another question that came in through our questionnaire. Uh, we, someone would like to know the status of cannabis in Santa Barbara County broadly, which I think Amy can address for us. Good morning. So a quick update. There is actually um, was a big development yesterday. So just for those of you not in Santa Barbara County, um, Santa Barbara remains really the center of both outdoor or sun-grown cultivation along with greenhouse cultivation. Um, but due to NIMBY concerns and organized opposition from the wine industry over the past few years, the Board of Supervisors back in 2019 placed a cap on the number of acres that can be grown in Santa Barbara County. And as of yesterday, the county actually reached this cap. So I expect there'll be some movement um, to lobby the Board of Supervisors to expand or lift this cap, but I think at this point it's too premature. The good news is the controversy has really dissipated and cannabis has become a key part of our economy, created thousands of jobs, and our polling really shows that most folks in Santa Barbara County support this new industry. So I think kind of looking forward, what we're going to expect to see is increased push to have processing and manufacturing space so that this revenue doesn't leave the county. I think we're also going to see some exciting trends in uh, weed and wine tourism. And um, over the next few years, we're going to watch as many of these projects that have just received their permits and their licenses build out. So it's really interesting to hear from you, Brian, Melissa, and Drew, because federal legalization is really a key part of the success of California farmers. Um, as you know, California has the ag infrastructure, a history of growing the best um, cannabis in the world. So many farmers are looking to expand across state lines, even globally, perhaps, um, Right now, there is a lot of cannabis being grown. And so the question is, um, what happens with all this product? Um, the other push sort of internally in California is to push certain counties that are still in a prohibition era to open up and allow more dispensaries, because right now we don't have enough dispensaries to serve all 40 million of us. I think that is all for questions. Oh, we did get one more. What effect do you believe federal legalization will have on the potential marketing of cannabis products in the OTC nutraceutical segment by the ICVSs of the world in general market, i.e. not dispensaries, et cetera? Uh, well, I'll start. I'm happy to have our team weigh in as well. You know, I think the overall Schumer bill um, would address FDA regulation and how products are sold generally. Um, obviously, cannabis license holders currently don't want to lose their market share to larger operators, um, uh, certainly in the in the pharmacy space um, and across the board to larger retailers. Uh, you might have seen Amazon is now pushing for legalization, and we can all guess perhaps why, so they can start delivering products as well. Um, I think at the end of the day, these are exactly the opportunities for stakeholders to provide uh, feedback and explain why you know, an industry that's been up and running throughout the U.S. in multiple states for the last 20 years, if you look at California, uh, shouldn't change overnight when interstate commerce is allowed um, and, and those products should not be able to be sold overnight to other groups or by other groups. Um, but again, these are exactly the conversations that are happening on the Hill right now about how to structure the system. And I think it's why you've seen a lot of cannabis companies push back on FDA oversight in favor of 
honoring state systems. Um, but I'll pause there, Drew and, and Brian. I don't have anything to add there, but, but before we close, I did wanna offer uh, one other observation, if I may. Um, I think it's possible that part of the reason that the Biden administration hasn't moved is simply a lack of bandwidth um, because they came in with such gigantic crises to deal with. And you can see in some areas, it strikes me, um, especially at FDA, no FDA director has been named yet. And you want to see how those positions get filled to develop clues or a sense of where the administration might go on issues like cannabis. It's very unusual to go this long without an FDA director, but there are major vacancies at a number of cabinet departments and agencies. And I think the administration is moving as fast as it can on some of these things, but you simply don't have leadership in some of these areas. You'd want to have a permanent FDA director to consult with if you're the White House and there's no one there. So, so it may be that as these jobs get filled, maybe later than we would have liked, but as these jobs get filled, some of these crises are tamped down a little bit. We do see some movement. Brian Weil, any final thoughts? We did get one more question hmm? while that came in. Sorry, Brian. Um, how will state and federal lawmakers address potency caps? What is the future, of, what is the future for potency caps? Well, um, there was an attempt by former Senate Banking Chairman Mike Crapo to include a 2% potency cap in, the late, in his iteration of the Safe Banking Act that the industry uniformly shot down and said we'd rather have no bill than that bill. Uh, so I think at the federal level, the message has been delivered that uniform potency caps across the board are a non-starter, uh, and I can't imagine that Senate or House Democrats would support them. All of that said, this is still a hand-to-hand -hand combat battle among state legislative bodies, uh, we've seen it in Florida. We just saw it in Colorado last year, Washington. Um, and I, I suspect that those uh, representatives of SAM and uh, Smart Approaches to Marijuana and other groups that wish to see uh, the lack of any movement on cannabis have now pivoted from a prohibition, uh, let's eliminate these bills and, and the cannabis industry position to let's essentially uh, do an end run to products by capping potency. So awareness has been raised uh, that this is not a thing industry would support and it would certainly gut the concentrate market. Um, but I think uh, generally speaking, this is a battle at the state legislative level. All right, Brian Wild, any final thoughts before we adjourn? This has been great. Thank you, everybody. Um, no, I mean, I think we covered it. I, I, I will say for those, <clears throat> that want to give up on Republicans. I, I don't think you should. I, I think in the end, um, Republicans are going to be the key to, to legalization, actually. Um, and that whatever whatever regulatory um, setup that we have, it's going to have to be created bipartisanly and then, and then enforced bipartisanly. Um, you know, we have a, a system uh, we've gone through, I guess, wave elections here. And what you've seen um, and you're seeing now is, is, as each administration comes in, they, they repeal all of the rules that the previous administration put in. Um, and for a, an, ish, an, an industry like cannabis that wants to be regulated and wants to be able to, to have plans that go 10, 20 years forward, um, you're going to want bipartisan support. Um, I think it's there. I think it's, it's, it's growing. Um, but I think it's, it's going to take some time um, to, to really educate these members. Um, you know, to, Melissa and I, especially talking to Republicans, 
Um, the staff are there. I mean, the staff are younger. Um, they're, they're coming out of states where it's, it's legalized. Some of them participated in can- campaigns to make it so. Um, and they're getting their bosses um, pointed in the right direction. So I'm pretty optimistic um, on, on a two to three year kind of time window for, for, for real live regulated federal um, cannabis that, that can be enforced by both Republicans and Democrats. Um, but we're, 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 we're making baby steps and I I'm, remain highly optimistic um, in general. And I would concur with that optimism. Uh, thank you, Drew. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Amy, for joining Melissa, us. Sorry yes. to interrupt. We did get another question. <laughs> <laughs> Are cannabis safety or late blooming testing rules a consideration at the federal level? Uh, it's, it depends. Um, as I mentioned, those conversations with uh, previous chairman of Banking Crepo, we did offer uh, some guidance, but it was uh, tied to what states have done to essentially ask the federal government to lean on states on serving size and labeling and, and dosage. Uh, to not reinvent the wheel. And part of that strategy was to make sure we didn't have a potency cap, Um, but not really. Uh, Those are, I I believe, will be generally considerations left to the states. But again, uh, FDA oversight is is hanging here. And again, that's where the stakeholder feedback matters, um, truly, to tell the Schumer, Booker, Wyden teams that, you know, if that's the preference, then those issues should stay with state governments. All right, and at the room, at the uh, uh, shock of potentially being uh, asked one more question, uh, please follow up with us. Thank you all for joining us uh, today on this Friday morning. Really grateful that you did. And um, any questions, uh, you know how to find us. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.